Welcome back to the Break Magazine podcast. This is the end of season two, the last episode, episode 10. And in today's podcast, we're going to cover the subject of photography and how you can go about creating better images from your travels to create better memories, to have a little bit more enjoyment from those images when you look at them and hopefully bore your friends and family a little bit less when you show them as well. I think this is something that a lot of people that do what we do use our motorcycles to get out and about and explore the world can benefit a lot from in terms of enjoyment and in terms of creating those memories. Uh, there's nothing less interesting than looking at someone else's photo of their adventure bike with a mountain in the background somewhere slightly out of focus in the middle of the day. It's a very generic photo and there's so much more that we could be doing without really a huge amount of effort. Uh, and if you're interested in that, I think you're going to really enjoy this podcast. Our guest this week is Isaac Johnston. He was on the last season of the podcast, but talking about something completely different. We talked about... Uh, survival and kind of how to get a better experience out of camping and being in the wild. That's something that Isaac is also really good at, but prim pri primarily he's a professional photographer and he shoots photos that are essentially adventure lifestyle photos. He shoots photos of the things he enjoys doing, being out in the wilderness, riding dirt bikes, and he has a, an ability to capture those images that I really like. They look like a, a vastly improved version of the photos that we've all taken. He's just taking those same photos to a really, really high level. They're really timeless and they really put you in that situation. And I think from a travel photography perspective or perspective of essentially doing the same thing as us that's a really nice memory to be able to create to even a tenth of the level that he does it the other thing i think you'll get from this podcast and it, i've really enjoyed is that he has an ability to articulate what the end goal is and how you might get there in a way that i think a lot of other people don't and it makes for a really enjoyable podcast i don't really have a lot more to say about what this podcast is going to be I hope you enjoy it and you learn uh, a little bit more about photography and about how to get the most from your from your adventures and your experience of trying to capture them a little bit better. And yeah, without further ado, I will leave you in the dulcet tones of Mr. Isaac Johnson. But because it's Ikea, it's the bed is like seven foot long. It's like extra long. This is like See, a Euro thing they do, which is super good. You could order Ikea here, but there's no Ikea store anywhere near here. Oh, they're, like, they're everywhere here. Yeah, like I think the closest one is <coughs> probably Seattle or Salt Lake. So like okay. 10 hours away. Yeah. So have you ever yeah. been to one? No, never. I feel like it's a rite of passage in the UK. When you, when, you turn, when you move into your kind of first house as an adult, you have to go to Ikea. Like it's a compulsory thing to do. And you buy a load of stuff that you could buy elsewhere for the same price, but you buy it from Ikea and just everyone does it because you can. You go for lunch is there, it, you get lost in there. It's maybe a little bit cheaper, but it's not special. 
it's just they they package it in a really nice way so you walk in and they have all these displays of how your house could look and they do an amazing job you know they package it so well and you walk around you're like wow i could look like this but you can't afford any of it because it's not that cheap you know you're a student at this point or whatever and it's still (laughs) like a living room costs five grand to get out from ikea but they've got some fancy glasses with some swedish names and they have a cafe and they have no clocks or windows so you don't know what time it is and you've not seen the daylight change <laughs> oh, dude, it's like it's like casino vibe yeah yeah and it's a one-way system as well it's like super hard to go back on yourself so like you end up going around multiple times because you're like oh what was that one thing i saw i forgot to write down and yeah it's a nightmare you either love it or you hate it um, but it's a rite of passage here for sure i don't know anyone that hasn't been to ikea and bought like a glass or something useless that they never really needed it's like the Dude, start of Fight I'm Club. Done. I gotta, I'm actually driving by UK. Salt Lake. <laughs> well, I'm driving by Salt Lake like next week. Maybe I'll swing in. Yeah, man. Do it. <laughs> and then like <laughs> and then there's a whole... You know if it's a good, this good whole, vibe like, or not. Uh, yeah, for sure. There's this whole thing as well where they have uh, like... I'm going to blue myself up a little bit. This is not... Uh, Cool. Um, yeah, there's this whole thing where like people buy IKEA furniture, but it's not really fit for purpose. So they hack the hell out of it and they cut it all up and do crazy things with it. And yeah, I don't know. It's just a it's a thing. It's a Euro thing. I think. I I heard there was like a uh, there was like a these like students or something like filmed an entire like uh, TV series inside of an IKEA without the IKEA people knowing. <laughs> you can definitely that? do that. No, I haven't. Yeah. I'm gonna Google that. It sounds amazing. <laughs> Yeah, I've not seen it, but I heard about it. All right, yeah, I'm going to add that to the list of uh, other films I've got to watch. I don't know if you yeah, remember yeah. Um, when when we were in Mongolia, there was um, that dude Miles, the Aussie dude with the big sunglasses. He was like the coolest dude in the room, but your dad yeah. at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't. He didn't. I don't think he was a huge fan of mine. I think because I'm not like a moto guy, and he was like, "Who's this fucking idiot? Who's a host who <laughs> is not a moto guy?" I think that's just how Miles rolls. Like, I feel the same, but he seems to like me, and he talks to me. But at the same time, he's like, just got this vibe. Dude, you completed. Like... You completed the cars, so of course he's gonna like you. <laughs> Isn't wasn't he the guy who like trained James Stewart at some point? No, that was the other Aussie dude. Um the what was his name shane okay so i think shane was the one who didn't like me i think i don't maybe i don't know shane's a bit of a hard read he's like he's friendly but i don't know what his deal is yeah no miles was the the guy who was the the guide anyway so he told me about this film he watched called the the eagle huntress did you did you hear about this no you should watch it man it's it's, yeah it's really good it's about this little girl in mongolia and it it just if she basically was like the first female they ever let take part in the eagle hunting competition and she won when she was like 14 it's sick it's a really good film i think if it's like free to watch on the bbc i don't don't know if there's like an equivalent or if you can watch the bbc where you are well you just gotta get like uh what's that google Uh, vpn uh, yeah today's sponsor (laughs) that would have been a great segue it would have been a great segue, except for that uh, I'd have been like, yeah, but there's like Ola is like a free VPN plugin for Chrome and has been forever. So I'm not sure why anybody pays for VPNs. I didn't know that that was a thing. Oh, now we get someone with the white balance. I look a little bit less like I've got jaundice. My light here is terrible. I'm so sorry. Dude, right. that's all right. I've, just, I've got like You've good got the best light I've here. ever seen. It's like ridiculous <laughs> how good your lighting is. Like it just looks really scrim. good like, yeah well basically that's it like you there's like 
a whole window bank on this side and then a window bank in front of me. And then I have blackout curtains so I can shake the light however I want. So I've got like half of them pulled and oh, whatever. Man. You're living the dream. You're, you're like, you look like a professional and I look like a guy who's in his bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's what I do. So I got I, uh... I to gotta tune it up a little bit. I gave this, um, I did this, uh, like, a, I don't know how to describe it, like a three-part seminar for um, the library service in Wales. So uh, they, they kind of have to make a lot more video now since like COVID and stuff. And librarians are not super technical people. They're not like stoked on making videos. So I did this like uh, three-part series for them about how to produce like video basics. Like you're shooting YouTube videos and stuff from home. This is what you're going to go through. And uh, I, I did this whole bit about like, if you're going to film it, you need to light it. Window light's fine. And as I did that, like I hadn't noticed it in my new house. The sun comes across the window and just I was getting like whiter and more blown out as I was talking to them about lighting the video well. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like giving yeah, this that's... talk. And then I saw it at the end and I was like, I'm a ghost, man. I'm like gone. I've just told you to like, oh, it's horrendous. <laughs> It's so embarrassing. Yeah, good example, right? But like, <laughs> yeah. that's the same thing here. Like if we talk for an hour, the light might look shitty. Who knows? Cause it's not, I haven't controlled the light. It's just outside yeah. light. <laughs> it looks but good. I also set this, set the camera on AV. So it, it'll at least adjust. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think yeah. of that either. <laughs> you're so well, much you're... right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, uh, well, dude, it's cause I've made the same mistakes, right? You've, <laughs> Maybe you've this is why. Like, oh God. And then you're like, you're like dragging, you know, reverse doing yeah. your buttons, which never works well. And you're like going the wrong way first. And then, yeah. But this so. is why I'm asking you about photography and not doing the teaching myself. <laughs> I think one of us is uh, good at learning from their mistakes and the other one's called me. So, um, yeah, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's do some, uh, talking about that really. Um, that was the main reason I kind of wanted to talk to you, uh, was to do a podcast, uh, about photography and travel photography and and a little bit towards like how people can make their own travel photos a step above that kind of standard i went out on my bike here's my bike in front of a backdrop super boring there's a million of them on instagram you know how you can make good holiday photos instead of making just a generic photo that bores your family when you show them on the TV at the end, you know, some stuff that yeah. you look back on at the end and you're like, man, that was amazing. And I think one of the things I've noticed, like I've been looking since we met is like two, nearly three years ago, right. That we, yeah, met. too long, <laughs> too long. Yeah. Too long. Like I think that was the last time we hung out too. And uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, we were planning to do something this uh, in 2020, but uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> Yeah, yeah I, I keep talking about things. I'm like talking to someone. I'm like, oh, you know, like last year. And then I check myself. I'm like, it was two years ago now that that happened. And yeah. last year, yeah. I've just written it off. Like it doesn't exist, but that's a painful. <laughs> well, especially <laughs> for you guys, like, uh, you know, here in Montana, that's, there's not a lot of people and the people who are here tend to not care about any virus related yeah. stuff. And so there was, there was no lockdown, which was kind of unfortunate because we got like hammered with tourists and, uh, I just read okay. something in the newspaper today. This is a total rabbit trail. Uh, our area has uh, generally like 17% of homes are sold on average. And right mm -hmm. now they're saying 75% of the homes are sold. Uh, mm -hmm. The average median home price went up like 35%. Yeah. Uh, wow. Just in the last year. Yeah. The so, same kind of happened here as well. Like the moment lockdown hit, 
a friend of my dad sells forestry and he went he was like i've never sold so much for like empty forests in my life because people just want to buy them and live in them they just don't want to yeah. be around people anymore it's yeah. crazy yeah yeah it's yeah. nuts i think probably the same thing happened in most rural areas but mm. we got super hard hit and then uh because nobody in the u.s could travel outside of the u.s last mm-hmm. year uh like everybody did you know national park tours and we just got hammered like there's generally september october everybody goes home and nobody went home <laughs> it was still okay. like yeah like we get like three million visitors a year to the park but they're like to this to glacier national park where i live mm-hmm. uh but it's usually between like mid-june and the end of august and it just spread out over the whole year and just was nuts 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 20% increase in the season passes at our local ski resort. Like, yeah. Right. yeah. Anyway. But yeah, I think so that's was, probably uh, like a good uh, side effect in the long run that people want to be outside more. Do you know, I think that's a cool thing, especially for like what we do. Um, yeah. Ultimately. So yeah, what, what I kind of, I had like what the, uh, over the last couple of years since we met, I I've what like watched your Instagram and your photography and the people you spend time with. And it, it's been quite transformative, like for my own photography. And it kind of showed me that there's this, this whole aspect of photography that I didn't really care that much about before or pay much attention to, or even know how to go in that direction. Like my photography, I, I came from a background of like almost press shooting. I'd like go to events, shoot, a thousand photos in a day. I had to have a hundred good action photos of a dirt bike going around a track. And that was like what I did. I went there, I got good shots. Not, not often like shots where you'd be like, that's one that's going on the wall. There was like just a good solid bank of shots. And then you'd move on yeah. to the next race and you would do that again and again. And you wanted to be the best that you could be at that. But it, it's a bit strange because if you give me a 200 mil lens and a sports camera, I can shoot you like a pretty sweet photo of a dirt bike. But if you, if you give me a 35 mil lens and you send me out to take pictures with my friends out, just bumming around, like doing nothing, I'm not coming back with anything good. I'm coming, I'm I'm like one step above a 15 year old kid with that stuff, do you know? Because I know (laughs) what shutter speed and aperture do, but I don't have that knowledge base of how to make a really nice lifestyle photo is something that for me is super alien. And I'm sure for most people it is, you know, it, it's a really tricky thing to do. So I, I think, I suppose my, the, the journey of this conversation starts with where did that start for you? Were you a good photographer when you started taking photos and where did your, how did you end up going from what you were doing before? We talked about that in like the previous podcast to being a photographer who specializes in like outdoor lifestyle. Yeah. Okay. So, well, that's, that's a, I guess, kind of a multifaceted (laughs) question, but I think for me, the, uh, the impetus to like start taking photos was not, I didn't actually consider myself a creative person. I had, uh, you know, in, in like my late teens, early twenties had toured around in a band and, and played bass and sang backup vocals, but I didn't write the songs. I didn't feel that creative. And then I, you know, ended up in the business world, but, the reason I started taking photos is I started working with uh, photographers, photographers and, and uh, Instagram influencers to promote my business. And one of those guys, Alex Stroll, was just like, hey, I have this spare camera. Why don't you give it a try and just see what you think? And it turned out that I had a bit of a knack for it. But when I look back, I think a bit of a knack might even be uh, describing it a little bit uh, in rosy terms. Because when I look back at my original photos... I'm just like, yeah, they're, they're just photos. I think everybody was just mega encouraging and the camera was really nice. So it just made like mediocre photos look pretty good. Um, but I think 
just because, uh, well, there was two things that, that made me pursue that. One was that I was having fun with it. Uh, it was fun to play with a new camera and it was fun to shoot photos on a new camera of all the things that I normally did. Um, it, it was a unique perspective that I didn't see anybody else shooting at the time because that's all the things that I normally did. Most photographers were just kind of nerdy and would mm-hmm. shoot like, you know, just like urban environments or, or they, they were just kind of nerdy to me, photographers. And so I had like this unique perspective that I hadn't seen before. So it was fun to see those. And then at the same time, I had friends who were the best photographers in the world giving me feedback. And I had, I think this was a huge, this was a huge uh, uh, level up for me was that I didn't, I didn't have any of my ego or value as a person tied up in my photography at mm-hmm. all. Like I, I was, because I didn't start until I was 31, already pretty much knew who I was as a person, had my value wrapped up in other things that had happened in my life in the past. And photography was just a fun hobby. And if somebody told me I sucked, I'd be like, yeah, I, yeah, I kind of do. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. So because of that, I was able to always take my photos to my friends uh, and they were nice enough to let me and just get feedback for everything and be like, what do you think of this? And they'd be like, oh, I don't like the greens or I don't know why you shot that angle or maybe you should crop it different or have you thought about shooting from a different angle? Um, and because of that, I was able to be open to learning a lot of things without feeling like they were uh, you know, putting me down or telling me that I wasn't good at something that I thought I was good at or that I was like trying to be good at and wanted to be good at so that when they told me I wasn't good, I wasn't living up to my ideals. So Mm -hmm. I think by not having any ego at all attached to, uh, you know, whether or not I was good at this, I was able to get good. But to that, to that end, I actually didn't call myself for the first two years I did this professionally made money. I didn't call myself a photographer. I, I just, I didn't feel like I was qualified to actually be, I mean, I didn't know anything. I felt like I didn't, I was just getting luck is what I felt. And I think there was part of that was luck, but part of it was that I was just totally uh, open to trying a bazillion things and shooting a bazillion images. You know, I think I told you this in the last, the last podcast, but I shot uh, over 50,000 images every year for the first three years that I, that I um, took photos professionally or just as, as a, as a living. You and know? I think, I, I think I, for some context, that's like, do you know, this isn't like you're out shooting a, an event where a thousand photos a day is, a realistic thing you're shooting like landscapes and people where smashing yeah. out a huge amount of photos is not a particularly easy thing to do like that's a monumental right. amount of photography yeah yeah like i go shoot sunset of the lake and i might shoot my friend and i might just shoot the landscape which would be you know if you shot 200 photos it's like what are you doing you know there's, there's not 200 photos to shoot here so but i would do that so many times i'd shoot sunrise sunset i'd shoot in the middle of the day i'd shoot every almost every single day and then I posted my photos to Instagram every single day at that point um, mm-hmm. for like two and a half years, every single day. So you think of that, that's, that's less than 300. And, you know, if I did every single day, that's 365 photos a year and I was shooting 50,000. Mm-hmm. Um, so the process for me, it was more like uh, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, the process mm-hmm. of, of selecting and and looking at images and being like this one's good this one's not i've edited this one i'm going to post this one of calling it down and saying like this one's good oh i wish i would have done this a little bit different i'll do that different next time um it's almost an unconscious process that you get better that way because mm-hmm. you think like oh i i next time i'll adjust this that 
rarely happens. Generally, you just adjust it because you've shot it, you know, away before. And you're like, oh, I didn't notice this last time because I was so busy futzing with the knobs or just shooting what was right in front of me. Now I can think a little bit differently. So practice, I guess that, that was kind of uh, the launch of how I got into photos and no, I wasn't good at it right away. I like to think that I had some sort of knack, but no more than most people. Right. And Mm -hmm. I I tell you one thing, I still to this day can barely shoot a photo with my iPhone. So that for me was a huge leap. Like I just knew that whatever I shot on my iPhone was was garbage like it just looked like mm-hmm. an iphone photo and it was not art to me it was not compelling and and so i almost never shot photos on my iphone and then i got a uh and and then i got a professional camera and this was not like a top of the line professional camera even at the time it was old it's really old now but at the time it was probably a 10 year old camera but it was professional top of the line 10 years ago mm-hmm. and so it, it made really good looking images just mm-hmm. just really pretty images it had all sorts of uh, limitations, but um, that was kind of the the genesis for where I started. So, when you when you look back at those photos that you were taking at the start uh, and at the time you felt like you had a knack for it, what's the biggest thing you think has changed in your photography from then to now? Well, so like you were saying that you could go out uh, with a two hundred mil and shoot a specific type of photo. Mm-hmm. and shoot it really well and come back with a bunch of images. For me, what's changed is is I literally would do that. I knew how to shoot um, a landscape with a human inside of it and like your typical like Instagram image. I knew how to do that as well as almost anybody out there. Um, but I didn't know how to shoot like details or mids. I didn't know how to tell a, a wider story of of wides, mids, and details and you know, like something you'd read in National Geographic. I didn't know how to shoot a compelling story with multiple images because that's not what Instagram was at the time. There was no carousel function. Um, it had just gone from being squares to to portrait. Like it, there was no video. There was no nothing when I started. Uh, so I didn't know how to create uh, a full set of images that were every single one of them was compelling in its own way, but also tied together and built up uh, the, the entire story. And I wasn't really good at, you say I was good at lifestyle, but I didn't feel like I was good at lifestyle. Uh, now I can shoot lifestyle. And so it, for me, it's just a broadening of the ability to tell a fuller story. Mm-hmm. So when you, when you started out and you're like, you're going through that process of learning, how, how much of your journey was about the technical aspect of photography? So learning what the settings do and how much of it was, actually just being in a good place, learning what the angle of something is and, and kind of trying to capture it that way. Because I think when I remember when I started doing photography in general, and even now I'm constantly like thinking a little bit about the settings. And even though it's subconscious going through them, like I'm always playing with them. And that can yeah. be really intimidating when you start doing photography, like it's complicated. You have these relationships between these things. How much of your photography was involved in like the technical aspect and how much of it was about just like putting the camera in the right place and taking a nice photo and letting the camera figure it out, I suppose. So, I mean, I always shot from manual right from the get go. Nobody even taught me right away. Like they handed me the camera and they said, you could put it in this or that, but here's manual. And I was like, well, what do you shoot? And they're like manual. And I was like, why would I, put training wheels on here so i remember the very first photo that i've ever posted to my instagram it's still there i think it's like this snowy scene i i went out in manual and i didn't even know what the hell i was doing i didn't even know what the knobs did and i was just twisting them <laughs> until because you know it's not film so you could see the back of the screen you mm-hmm. could preview the image 
I was just twisting the knobs until it got to what I thought looked like an okay, you know, exposure of the image. Yeah. Um, but, but that said, I, I learned, I learned the technical stuff. I would always ask questions about it. I'd be like, how do you do this? How do you do that? What did I do wrong here? But as soon as I learned it, I almost never talk about it. Like, it's just, to me, it's boring. I don't care about how many pixels there are. Like, it's it's only interesting, like, right when, you know, a new camera comes out, like, you know, camera I'm filming on right now, it, it's got, like, a stabilized sensor, which is cool because then it doesn't shake as much when you're filming and you can shoot lower shutter speeds uh, and without getting motion blur. But that's, like, that's as interesting as the sentence I just said. It's not very interesting to me. <laughs> I'm glad it's there and I want it. Like, I want to have that in my camera, but learning the technical settings, I learned them and then just practice them over and over again. So now when I go out there and even in the beginning, like as soon as I had those technical settings, I would just try and learn them to the point where I didn't think about them because they don't actually matter. You know, like a lot of landscape shooters will say that you need to shoot like F8 or above so that you get the, your lens in the sharpest, uh, you know, range that it has. And uh, I know people who are like, really famous landscape shooters who never shoot above F4 because sharpness yeah, yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter if the image is sharp. Like nobody's ever looked at a, at a beautiful image and gone, Oh, that's really sharp. <laughs> that's not what makes the image compelling. Now I'm so said, glad to hear you say that though, because I, I think like when I, when I, I'm obviously, you know, you mentioned it at the start photographers inherently, we're a little bit nerdy. Like I definitely, I think I'm a bit of a nerd. I'm a nerd with motorbikes. I'm a nerd with cameras and I get excited by those details. But as soon as I talk to anyone else about it, I'm like, oh yeah, cameras. And they're like, cool photo, man. And you mentioned anything like you just did that sentence. Like I've got this new camera because X, you just glass over Like you can't talk to yeah. anyone about it. And yeah. I think it, 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 that side of photography is so deep. It's like almost closing off to people. Do you know? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people use it as a, uh, as a distraction. Like they start to talk yeah. about the details of like, what was your settings and this, that, and the other. Mm. And they get into that and they, they focus so much on that that they don't actually take a good photo. Mm -hmm. Like they don't, they don't actually, and I think it's hard to talk about like why this photo of grass waving in front of the ocean is, it connects with me emotionally versus this photo that I took, which doesn't. Uh, you know, what's the difference between those, you know, like it, it, there is no real difference between those. And it's just, a, it's more of a feeling. It's something you have to do with practice and it's not measurable and you can't pay money to get better performance. You just have to mm -hmm. go out and do it and feel it. And it's like, you know, it's like writing a song. Like if you were just buying the best guitars and, and, uh, you know, amps and, and music equipment, then all rock stars would have been rich before they started, <laughs> but almost none of them are rich when they start. Because it's not about it's not about the gear; it's about the emotion that's behind the behind the equipment, and that equipment just all it does is serve to amplify or simplify what they're trying to say. Uh, so that's kind of a trap, I think. So uh, to, to go back to that, I just go out there, and my strategy still is and has always been: what are we doing, and how can I shoot a photo of that? So it always starts with what are we doing, because a lot of people still, and this is you know, great photographers do this and it's just never been an angle that excites me, but like really famous photographers do this. They'll be like, I want to shoot a photo that looks like this and feels like this. And they'll, you know, stage everything. And for me, it's like, I want to ride my motorcycle 550 miles. How do I best take photos of that? Mm -hmm. You know, like, like for me, it's always photography has been the vehicle to tell the story. And it's actually funny that you say that. Cause like, uh, I'm, I'm what I call medium agnostic. I don't give a shit if it's a photo or if it's a video or if I write it 
or, or whatever. Like, I just want to tell the story of what I'm doing. And it just happens that photography is my strongest way to do that. Uh, but for me, it always starts with what are we doing? And then I start to think about like, well, it'd be sick to, if we're doing that, to some best expanse. We're going 550 miles, but it also cool to show some like trail side repairs. And so I want to focus on a little bit of that. And maybe like, uh, you know, if Lou Ellen's on the trip, I want to show like, you know, you know, 400 miles in him, just like an exhausted photo of him, just dusty laying on the ground mm -hmm. in a spot that looks uncomfortable because he's just so exhausted. Mm -hmm. Uh, so like, those are the things that start to pan out. And then you take that photo and a lot of times I'll shoot for what I call coverage. Um, which means that I'll shoot that same photo, but I'll shoot it, you know, really far away. I'll shoot medium far away. So like, you know, like 10, 15 feet away, and then I'll shoot up close. And then I'll later I'll pull which one I think is the best. And that's kind of how I cover um, not being an artist. Like I know people that are an artist now look at a scene and they'll be like, this is the best photo. Mm -hmm. And that's not me. So I'll shoot for coverage. Uh, and, and that really, you know, then later it adds so much work later in front of my computer. It's not a great strategy, but later I get to think about what is the better image and can pull it back and, and do that. But for me, again, what's important is what are we doing? What's going to be impactful about this story? Why is it interesting that we're riding 550 miles? And if I was to see the most interesting photos from that shoot, what would that look like? And then those are the things I try and uh, be aware of when they happen or be like, Hey, uh, can you ride through this wide scene? I think this is the best scene we've seen. I know we already read, rode through it, but can you ride through it one more time? Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of how I would direct a typical shoot um, versus like, you know, some people just want to shoot a photo to shoot a photo. And I feel like for me, I used to do that and it doesn't resonate anymore. So for instance, I would get up at, you know, before light go shoot sunrise at a beautiful lake but it's a beautiful scene, but it means nothing to me. And in fact, it means less than nothing because I don't like to get up before sunrise. It's a painful experience. And hiking up there just to get the photo and hiking back down is boring as hell. Like mm -hmm. if I was up there, we should at least go swimming or maybe summit the peak behind it or at least spend the day up there fishing or do something fun. But mm -hmm. hiking to a lake for sunrise does not equal fun. It doesn't equal a memorable moment. It doesn't. The only thing is it's visually stunning, but to me, that's not enough. I want it to look like uh, yeah, I just want it to look like we actually had a good time. And to do that, there's no faking it. You actually have to have a good time, at least in, in the style of photography that I have. Well, and I think essentially what, what you're saying is like the style of photography you have is you're, you're trying to capture the fact that you like doing what you're doing. And that's essentially what people are doing when they're like, they're taking their own photos of their journeys, right? Like if they go adventure riding somewhere, they're doing it because they love it. They want to have that yeah. experience and to take nicer photos of that scene it's going to create a better memory. Like the only thing that is good about uh, your standard, like I went on a motorbike ride photo is the fact that you yeah. have the memory of that scene. But if you can tell that in a better way, that's got to be a better experience. Um, yeah. when, you, when you go out to, I think one of the most interesting things that I, when we first met as well, and you were kind of like, oh yeah, I'm a photographer and I do Instagram and stuff. And I'm like, I've got a big following and, and so on. 
And when I say big, you didn't think Did it I was say big. That? Did I... No, no, no. You <laughs> didn't say it was big. You were like, oh, yeah, I've got like 100K. <laughs> and I... <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, you were super mellow about it. And I was like, you've got 100K on Instagram. Man, I've been putting photos on Instagram for years and I've got like 3,000 people. I'm really struggling with this stuff and whatever. Yeah. So, um, and I remember you at the time being like, oh no, my channel's not big. Like my best friend's got 2 million. Uh, but more what interested me was that you went away on a trip to shoot and you were essentially a presenter but you went away on a trip and you took two lenses and i was like that's super interesting you know you have one camera two lenses and you told me you didn't use anything else so you had a really minimalist kit and i was there and i think i had like the biggest backpack in the world and i had like lenses coming out my ass and microphones and stuff i didn't even really want to use uh, and I yeah. took it because I was like, well, if I need a wide angle, I got to have a wide angle. And ever since then, that's changed my like style of photography and my approach to this stuff quite a lot. So what do you what do you carry now if you're going to do a basic shoot? Do you still just have like a really narrow well, not narrow, but like a, a simplistic kit or is it more complicated? Well, let me just put a pin in, in Mongolia. I So one of the reasons... There's two two reasons I had such a minimalist kit there. One, because that's generally how I roll. But two is because I wasn't there to create media and I wasn't no. sure I would yeah, even yeah. have time. And not only that, but the policy was at the time with the agent that I was using was that if the client doesn't pay you to make media, do not make media because you are debasing your rates. And for some reason, no matter how much we cajoled them, BMW did not want me to, to pay me to make media. They're like, everybody else is just doing it for free. And I was like, yeah, but I get paid to do this. So, uh, so I also had a little bit of a perspective that maybe I shouldn't create and share that much media, which mm -hmm. in hindsight was so dumb. How often do you get to go to Mongolia? <laughs> like that was bad advice. <laughs> uh, but to be honest, um, that's, that's in hindsight, but to be honest, uh, you know, being on the media team, we were leaving two hours before everyone else mm -hmm. and getting back like two to three hours after everyone else. And I was speaking in front of the camera and or waiting for everybody else to shoot stuff with limited time to even shoot a photo of a camel. So it would have been frustrating for me to try and do both. Um, mm -hmm. It would have just been like pulling me in multiple directions, meaning that I would have been less good at whatever at both things. So it was probably good, but the minimalist kit, in Mongolia, I should have brought a zoom lens because it's a big ass country <laughs> and I wanted to get closer to things. Uh, but you know, I didn't even own a zoom lens at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, like mostly I would rent projects. So going back to what my kit is for the first three, two, I guess it was two and a half years that I did this professionally. I rented all the lenses that I needed for professional shoots, but my only lens, I only had one camera and one lens and it was a 16 to 35. Um, well, yeah. And that, that for me is like, uh, it was born out of necessity in that I didn't have a ton of coin yet, uh, to purchase gear. Now I can, luckily I have, you know, well-paying jobs that I can purchase gear, but also the fact that I just didn't, I refused to let not having gear get in the way of me shooting photos I wanted to shoot. So, mm -hmm. you know, so what if I had to shoot something at 35 that should have been shot at 200, I'm just going to shoot it. And we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. Get closer. Um, you know, yeah, exactly. Get closer. It, which is really hard to do when you're in a helicopter flying over a sperm <laughs> whale in New Zealand. Yeah. <laughs> you're just like, I'll have a fucking 35. So I'm going to hold really still and then crop in and then do a ton of post work to see if I can get it to look good. <laughs> and it still doesn't. 
uh, yeah. So I mean, there's there's certain things where you need that extra uh, lens. But I, I'm I'm thinking for regular folks like uh, 16 to 35, or you know, nowadays my primary lens is a 24 to 70. Um, I think that's the most useful range. And like, I'm a Canon guy. So my Canon setup is a 24 to 70 and an R5. And I don't even have like the RF lens, which is the new uh, version of lenses. I just have the uh, the old version with the adapter. And it's still one of the sharpest, best lenses you can get for commercial work. Now, what I did is if I had something special, let's say somebody's probably not going to do, who's listening to this is not going to do commercial work. But if you have a trip coming up, there's places, uh, like I use lens rentals all the time, lensrentals.com. Mm-hmm. You can rent for a week. You can rent a lens for like 50 to 100 bucks. You can rent a full camera. So you could like rent these things and they have damage insurance on them. You can rent the full setup for like 300 bucks with multiple lenses and a big camera. And you can have the most fun you've ever had. And so to this day, that's still what I do. Like I, uh, I just did a huge commercial shoot in, in December, one of the biggest shoots of my life. And I just rented an entire, an entire setup, two cameras, one as a backup, and like five different lenses, you know, like $40,000 worth of equipment and went there and shot this thing. And I don't need to own all that equipment. Don't need to. Mm -hmm. Uh, But now my kit looks like 16 to 35, 24 to 70, and a 100 to 400 zoom lens. Mm -hmm. Um, All of those lenses were bought used. The camera is an R5, which is my only camera. I don't have a backup because I just, you know, I just don't ever break it. I'm tough as nails on stuff. Um, the only time I ever broken a camera was in Mongolia, actually. <laughs> yeah, I remember this. Yeah, because <laughs> I and I barely broke it. Like a screw came out. It still worked. Everything was fine. Uh, but like it rode on the ass pack of my of my GS and just like bounced across Mongolia <laughs> for two thousand miles. So of course it broke. But yeah. like I just don't care about the gear if it's hard to use or hard to pull out of my pack or inconvenient. I won't shoot a photo, and I'd rather it break and I shoot a photo than. Mm-hmm it not break and I don't shoot the photo. So that's a personal theology about camera gear that I hold. Plus also professional level gear is very repairable. I've not ever broken a camera in a way uh, where I can't get it repaired. Like stuff will happen, like just glitches or whatever. And you send it into Canon and they'll repair it. And it's not that expensive. It's like a couple hundred bucks every time. Mm -hmm. Um, So now I guess if I had to pick, uh, you know, like a minimalist gear setup for somebody to take riding, I, you know, the new mirrorless cameras, Sony uh, or Canon, are pretty small in size. They do end photo really well. And the new RF lenses are really small. So uh, I think one of my favorite setups that I've been using, uh, borrowing a friend of mine's lens, it's the, I think I'll even buy it, but it's the 35 millimeter um, macro and it's the RF lens. It's like this small, like literally that long, probably that big around, but it's a professional uh, series lens, super sharp. And when you put it on the mirrorless camera, the whole thing is like that big. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, if I was doing a moto trip, I'd probably just bring that. Unless I was going, you know, to do professional level content, then I'd probably bring a zoom lens as well. Um, but, you know, you can get it all compact. And and it's not, again, everybody says it's not about the gear. The gear helps tell a story. It's not really the point. It is about the gear, but it's not the point. Like if you start thinking about all the gear and, and you're like compromising to make sure you have all the gear, you're you're missing out on telling the story. Your focus needs to be on what story you want to tell and then make sure you have the right tools to tell it. Mm-hmm. But honestly, everybody everybody over-indexes on the tool and not the story. Um, because story is kind of like 
ephemeral and hard to focus on. And it takes emotional energy to like think about stuff that you want to yeah, do yeah. instead of just having gear and being like, I'll just have it. And if something happens, I'll pull it out and shoot photos of it, mm-hmm. which is not a way to get good photos. Um, I don't think. Yeah. I like to think about things first, you know, and be like ready for when that opportunity happens, you know, go through a ride in my brain. Like, okay, we're, I think it traverses this high Alpine section. There might be a, like a really long section there that if I had a zoom lens, I could compress uh, all of the mountains and make it look really mountainous and, and kind of uh, magnificent. So that would be cool for a zoom lens. So then I'm bringing a zoom lens. But if I don't walk through that in my head, I'm like, I'm just going to grab the R5 with the 35 mil and just shoot what happens. And if I get to that scene and I see it and I shoot it and it's not magnificent, so what? It, like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm already, I'm shooting and I'm not bothering with the gear. Yeah. Well, and I suppose the nice thing, and I, this is something that I've discovered as well, because I, I kind of went down this rabbit hole a little bit after, after we met and I started seeing, like paying attention to this other world of photography that I didn't really pay much attention to beyond going, that's a pretty photo. That's a pretty photo. That's a pretty photo. And trying to figure out how to make those photos myself. Right. So I, I also kind of came across your, your friend Forrest um, and watched mm-hmm. a bunch of his stuff and watched like uh, kind of tried to understand a little bit how he goes about making it. Because I think you guys, it's a different style you have, but like your approach and the end product is quite similar. Like you have these lifestyle photos that are shot. They, f- they almost feel like you're there, do you know, in a way that like a zoom lens and an action shot doesn't. That looks otherworldly. Mm-hmm. When I look at you guys' photos, I, I feel like I could be in that situation. And I was like, I really wanted to understand how I can take photos like that. I ended up buying a film camera with like a fixed 50 mil lens and a 20, it's a 28, but it's essentially like nearly a 35 and shooting in that aspect ratio is almost really liberating because it's, it's personal enough that you don't like you're in the scene a little bit more. You're not really far away from each other, but you also haven't got any option. Like you just have to shoot what you've got. And then I found that I ended up enjoying it more because i wasn't thinking about all the time do i need to change my lens do i need to get further away i've got one lens that's all i can shoot with and then i ended up taking more photos and enjoying it more and even to the point where i don't own a prime lens for my like for my canon like my film camera is an old minolta because that was the cheapest one on ebay but so i would just set my 16 mil to 35 and just be like i'm just going to shoot 35 all day i'm not going to touch it And and it's it's such a nice way to to approach not making photography a job as well, right? Like you kind of touched on it quite a lot that you want that experience of taking photos to always be about the thing you're doing, not about going to take photos for the sake of taking photos. And I think it's a really nice sentiment to be restricted in that way that if that makes sense. I don't I don't yeah. know if I've articulated well, it does that in a very good way, but yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, and obviously I don't get the, you know, like there, I mean, I just went to Hawaii and I had four commercial jobs in one Mm. month in a place I'd never been before. So it was about taking photos. Make Mm. no mistake. There was things I (laughs) wanted to do and places I wanted to go, but like I'm getting paid to take photos. So it's about Mm -hmm. taking photos. So in that it's a different situation than what maybe the listener is, is coming up against because they just want to go document their time with their friends on a motorcycle or, you know, show how epic it was or show how fun or just Mm -hmm. um, to be honest, like showing how epic things are is something I try to almost never do. I just try and show how like, um, you know, how it felt and usually how attainable I try and make all my shit seem attainable. 
mm-hmm. I feel like that to me, when I see people who do stuff that's really crazy, but they make it seem attainable, then I actually am more engaged in that than somebody who just makes this, uh, you know, n- you know, climbing Everest image. I'm like, yeah, that means nothing to me. Like I'm never going to climb Everest. You know, yeah. <laughs> and I think that I'm a lot closer to climbing Everest than most people, and it still means <laughs> nothing to me. Um, so I, I think that you touched on something though film cameras, you know, huge resurgence. Uh, and they, one of the things that, that is difficult for most people is editing. And mm-hmm. to be honest, it's, it's not my favorite thing sometimes as well. And I'll consciously take images, you know, that are personal images and be like, I'm just creating work for myself in front of the computer later. The more of these I shoot, you know, it's just not. So it really takes me kind of out of the moment because I'm shooting and I'm like, oh, how this I'll edit this. And But if I shoot a film camera, I literally have to wait. Then I send that in. I ship my uh, stuff off to a lab called State Film in Kentucky. So it takes like six days to get there because I just, I'm always... Too cheap. To, it's like this is already expensive, so I ship it like the slowest shipping, and then they get it, and then it usually takes like a week or two for them to process it, and then they send me digital scans back of this, mm-hmm. you know, JPEGs of of the film I've taken after they've processed it. But what that means is I don't have to edit anything. Like when mm-hmm. I get these images back, they're done. Somebody's done yeah. it for me. So that really, but it also comes with a, it comes with a feel. Like, like, I think what you're noticing is a feel. Um, and the feel on digital cameras has to do with a lot of your settings and, you know, your composition, but it also has to do with the way you edit as well. And I mean, we're talking thousands of hours of learning and I still barely feel like I'm an expert. I've still learned something every single time I do it. I learned something, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's just like forest speaking of forest. I mean, the dude's like a grandmaster. <laughs> he yeah. not only is really great at photography, but he is an insane editor and he can make something that, that in his camera looks meh, look amazing in editing. And it's not Photoshop. It's just, he's pulling out specific colors and tones that, that are the way it felt to him when he was there. Mm-hmm. And that's really what it's about. I think my favorite photos are enhancing a memory and not mm-hmm. trying to reproduce accurate detail of of the light. It's about what it felt like when you were there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why you can you feel like you're there is because he's able to tweak things in a way that makes it feel um textured like like your memory does of that moment. Now real life doesn't feel textured like that. Like if I just looked at the side here, there's no texture, but my memory of this time has a lot mm-hmm. more texture. Mm-hmm. Um so learning to edit I think is is a big part of that. Um, and I'm a big uh, proponent of like, if you're just learning to edit to buy presets now, mm-hmm. don't buy presets of like some like bandana wearing bro who travels to Bali and hangs his feet out of a helicopter. No, Unless Parker that's Wallbanks. what you want to be. <laughs> yeah, like if that's what you want to be. Uh, then, yeah. then do that. But if that's not the kind of images that you love uh, to see and want more of a documentary style, buy a preset of somebody who has like a documentary style. Like the presets that I really like are the ones that I'm like, that kind of looks like it could be in a 1980s to 1990s National Geographic. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's got some texture to it, but it, it it's like a texture of the time, but it's also like, it's like clear, it's clarity. And it looks like, um, you know, looks like, uh, a, a memory basically that's what mm-hmm. 1970s 1990s 
uh, Nat Geo looks like to me. Well, it looks like slide um, film, if you're like yeah. almost, you know. Yeah, like a Kodachrome, basically, mm -hmm. like a like a, a a late Kodachrome film. So that's also why film is really helpful that way. But you know, if you do get a film camera, I will say get something that focuses because out of focuses, out of focused images, they don't have a vibe. <laughs> absolutely not. They go There's immediately no from like nice scene to bad home photo. Like your dad doesn't yeah. know how the camera's working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like a, like like this is uh, there's like to me it's not a vibe. To me it's just mm. like it looks amateur. Um, yeah. So yeah, like it's go like early nineties Canon rather than uh, rather than nineteen seventies Minolta well, essentially. Yeah, well, it's funny. Funny you say that. I'm gonna grab my camera right here. Hold on. So this here it is. I'm just gonna. I'm not going anywhere. This I'm is the. Uh, yeah. No, no worries. So this is. Uh, it's called a Canon Elon Seven, and it's actually a film camera. It looks digital because it. I think this was made in like 2001, and this is actually uh, my my Elon lens, or sorry, my my EF lens, and this is my 60 to 35 that I use on my digital. But mm -hmm. this is actually, if you look at the back, there's no screen. It's just a viewfinder, and and on the top it says there's 22 shots left. Um, this is a film camera, and it has great autofocus. I just shoot it in like aperture priority and just fire away, and there's there's just nothing to do, right? Like it's mm -hmm. the only problem I don't love it is it doesn't fit in your pocket, right? But it, this is a great camera. I think these are like there's like camera film cameras are getting so expensive, but I don't think everybody's figured this one out yet. And because it is so new, it, there's still a lot on the market. I want to say it's like a hundred, 200 bucks for the body. And if you have mm. Canon already, you can use your same lenses. So but you can pick very, up like an old fun. Canon lens. Like it doesn't have to be like a good, a new F uh, EF series lens or like you can pick an old Canon lens up pretty cheap, like an early EF lens. They're not, they're not that expensive these days. Like, well, I mean, my well, there's, 24. there's a, I think for under 200 bucks, you can get a, a pancake. It's like, which mm -hmm. means, uh, they're like really narrow, like tiny. Yeah. Um, it's good. I think it's a pancake 40 millimeter, uh, for 200 bucks. And yeah. that's a super good quality lens. You can get a, a, a 28 millimeter for like 200 bucks. That's like a little bit earlier than that. Um, so you could have an all in camera setup for like 400 bucks. That's going to be super solid so that that's if you just want like vibes right but mm -hmm. if you want like you want a little higher quality and you do want to edit um you know you can get uh, the r6 is a great option the usr is like i think the biggest bang for your buck in cameras right now um i use the r5 but that's because i i need all those professional features but the usr i want to say like you can get them used for under 1400 bucks for the body and then that's yeah. a professional level camera I know because that's what I just used before I got this one. I was like mm -hmm. my professional level camera. Um, it's got a flip out screen. And then as you go older back, and I'm just a Canon guy, so I don't know anything about Sony really. But as you go back, the professional level cameras are still really good. Like if you don't want to flip out screen in a touch screen, the Canon 5D Mark III is a really great camera. I have mm -hmm. friends who still shoot that. Um, yeah, yeah. And so you can, you can, I think you can get that camera for... Geez, under 800 bucks for the body. And then all these lenses, you can get the EF series. They're much cheaper now because they've moved on to the RF series. They're all really good stuff. So, but the, the key is to get professional level gear, just get it older and in good shape. And, mm -hmm. and you'll have really great images versus buying like a, uh, you know, a brand new, uh, like a, you know, hobbyist level DSLR or, or something like that, or like a compact camera. And that's another thing I will say. 
if you are trying to get a compact camera, you are missing the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're just going to end up with lesser quality photos because, mm-hmm. because it's, you know, if, if professional level gear could be compact, they would make it compact. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like everybody would love that. They would sell a lot more. And, and, uh, but it, if you're just like wanting to get, you know, like, a you know, uh, Sony a a 6,000, I think is what they're called or, or like, a the Sony and has the 50, RX 100. Or, yeah. Yeah, all those, they're good, but they're not great. So I wouldn't focus so much on getting small and like thinking like, oh, that's going to fit inside my pack. Just prioritize your camera if you're bringing it. Like just, that's what I do is like, I guess I'm just going to carry extra weight. I'm going to have mm-hmm. more weight in there and it's it's going to be fine. You know, I'm, uh, I need a bigger tank bag or I'm going to have to wear a backpack with just my camera in it. And it's going to be a bit of a pain in the ass. But Every time you start prioritizing smaller and smaller and smaller, at the end you're just like, well, I should have just used my phone because that's like the best. Well, that's small another there is. another really good point. Like especially if you've got a phone from the last three years, you've got a wide angle and you've got a standard lens mm-hmm. in it, and the the difference mm-hmm. between those and say, uh, I, I mean, it depends on the lens you've got a bit like up to maybe an M50, which is like a six hundred pounds or like eight hundred dollar camera or something. There, there's no difference you know so you might as well just have your phone but you can still i mean i i'm not that guy but you can still take good photos on one of these if you're if you're good at it right and you i'm not that guy it. either and, but you know i just I, I feel like people can but like it it takes a level of mastery to be able to figure out how to make those images stand out and feel mm-hmm. um in a like feel in a way that draws people in so i think you're better off with instead of buying, you know, an M50, you're better off just buying a film camera because Mm -hmm. those images are going to come back and they're going to be, they're going to have a nice feel to them. They're going to be Mm -hmm. already edited. That's the best part. I'm telling you from somebody who spends, you know, like hours and hours and hours every week in front of the computer, uh, editing, getting photos back that are edited is just like, it's such a treat and it's so exciting. Like Christmas morning when you get that email that says your scans are ready. Um, that's the direction I would go. But again, it, the goal here is to figure out what you want to shoot ahead of time and how you want it to feel. And then like, you can go practice, you know, a couple of those images with your, with your phone. And if it sucks, then buy a film camera and you practice those before you go on your big trip. And if that looks better, then use that. If that sucks, then buy a bigger digital camera, like buy the tool to get the image you want instead of mm-hmm. just thinking, I need that. And uh, I'm going to try it. Like just experiment a little bit. You know, but you don't need to go right out and buy an R5 with a brand new RF lens to get that image because you are going to get a good image. But, you know, that's it's still not going to be this great, amazing image because what's missing is the practice of finding the right composition, telling the story you want to tell. And what's also missing is the ability to edit that image into a way that looks, uh, you know, just draws people in. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to learn there. I mean, it's like, you know, yeah. thousands and thousands <laughs> of hours of practice to learn there. So. But I think as well, yeah. it's such a subjective skill compared to other skills that you learn. Like it's art essentially, right? So it's such a subjective thing and it's so nuanced that being a good photographer and being a great photographer and having an eye for a composition that worked is a really difficult thing to develop. Like I I find it difficult and I'm pretty comfortable with a camera. 
you know, it's not like you're learning woodworking where if you use a saw enough, you learn to saw in a straight line and then you learn how to do a bunch of different joints and you can build a really nice table if you're patient and you work at it. Photography is like a little bit more abstract than that. You know, like you say, you're trying to create a feeling rather than learning a specific bunch of lines of things to do and going through a step to get there. But yeah. by the same token, it's also kind of accessible, right? Like you, cause there's no hurdles in the way beyond having a camera and choosing to take photos of things between you and getting better. Um, and it's yeah. nice. So like you said, one of the nicest things for me about that whole process of film is I, I don't shoot that much film because it, it's not a priority for me. I'm a little bit get a bit to the point with photography where I, at the weekend, I just want to go ride my bike. <laughs> Do you know, I'm like, yeah. oh, I'm done with yeah. cameras for the week, but the one, the two things I really like about it is when I shoot film, I can't see the photo. So almost in the reverse of I can't make it better other than hoping that I got my settings right-ish and that the composition was okay but I don't know for it could be a year before I get that film process and also when it comes yeah. back it's so nice you know that process and yeah. you're coming back and you're like oh man that's really cool remember that thing we did you go through a process it, it's almost uh, like a nice memory of that situation that you yeah. wouldn't get if yeah. you edited them the next day and then they go on Instagram or you show your family the weekend after, and then it goes in a box and you don't look at it unless you print it. Those two things for me are really nice. Like almost, I sound like a hipster advocate for taking your film camera out when you go motorbike riding. And, <laughs> but well, I mean, you it's, know, it's, that, it's, it's, it's coming a, back around. It's, it sounds hipster, but it's coming back around for a reason. And I would mm -hmm. say that even better than that, like, like the easiest way to get into film, let's talk about the easiest way and, and maybe they don't have this in the uk but i assume they do but disposable film cameras yeah like the yeah, little like have them. kodak mm. yeah kodak or fuji ones um get the kodak ones uh so here that, those are cool because you don't have to focus anything you mm. don't have to do anything they focus and then you shoot them and you get your film back and it looks amazing as far as like a vibe it's not exactly high fidelity but it's really easy and i think they cost like 15 bucks here mm -hmm. um and then steps above that is you can get the little point and shoot film cameras that are uh, reusable. I think I paid 20 bucks uh, for one at a vintage camera shop locally. And then uh, I just lost it the other day and I don't even care. I'm just like bummed. I lost the film in it because I hadn't finished the role yet, you know, but I had good images on there. But like then, so I've just bought like a $200 point and shoot film camera. Mm -hmm. And again, those don't, they, they autofocus. They, they, the quality has gone up obviously from the $20 one to the $200 one. Um, but it's super easy to just get into that, uh, and just shoot. And it really, you know, it's, it's like the best part about it is this, they, they fit in your pocket. You pull them out. Like you said, you, you don't look at the image after you're done. So you're like, I shot it. Maybe I should shoot one. If I don't think it was good. Okay. I shot two. That's probably good. I can't tell if it was good. I'm back to doing, it. I'm back on my motorcycle I'm back in the moment. And then mm -hmm. you can either wait a year like you do, or like, if you're like me, you're like, okay, I've shot 24 images out of 36. I'm just going to fire the rest of these off. <laughs> I can send this in. I want I'm going to send it in and then get the images back and then hopefully have them within like a month. Um, yeah. I like to batch the... mine though. So I don't want to pay the postage twice. So I like send them all in together. Oh geez. Yeah. I don't even care. <laughs> I don't even, but again, that's because I do this as a profession. So I'm like, uh, you know, like my film place just went up $2 to process film. And I'm like, ah, oh, who cares? Whatever. It's like the price of gasoline to me. It's so like, you, I'm still going to drive. Shoot, do you shoot some film for clients as well? I've never shot film for clients. No. Um, I think that you could do that, but you'd have to find a special client. And I've never even 
pitched it because I would still consider myself a newbie with film, which would mean that mm-hmm. there's a high likelihood that 50% of the shots are going to come out just like ruined. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I think I'd probably be comfortable doing that now, but I, I honestly, you have to find the right client who's like, mm-hmm. you've really got to, and you've got to sell them on it. Um, uh, it's just not the same, you know, to shoot professional level film, like, like, it, you know, before there was digital DSLRs, professional level film cameras were like giant Hasselblads and stuff like that. There were, mm-hmm. or Pentaxes and they were huge units that you really had to know what the hell you were doing. And well, you know, had to know everything it, about the post and everything. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And you had to know everything about like how chemical emulsion can pull this back. And you're like thinking of that while you're shooting this photo. Like it, yeah. it was, you'd be a mad scientist. Right. Yeah. Um, so, but I, okay. So another tip I would say, if you want to shoot, this is probably the easiest low hanging fruit for if you want to shoot better photos, especially if you have a, a, a better camera than a phone is to stop shooting your photos in mid daylight. Like basically mm-hmm. if it's after 10 AM, then you're not going to get a good photo depending on when mm-hmm. the sun rises. Um, if it's not near sunset, like the light isn't long, you're probably not going to get a really great photo. So that was mm-hmm. the, 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 the biggest tip for me is I almost didn't shoot midday fo- photos for, for a very long time. I almost didn't shoot them. I shoot them now, but it does take a lot of patience and understanding of light and my settings and how I'm going to edit this later. Like I have to have a really holistic view of how I'm going to make this image look good before I ever, you know, squeeze the the shutter. So before I knew how to do all that stuff, I would just only shoot in like sunrise light or, or sunset light and photos looked amazing. And I think mm-hmm. that's probably the easiest way to shoot good photos is just yeah. only shoot when the light's good. Yeah. Uh, so like if you're out riding a motorcycle trip, don't bother shooting that shit in the middle of the day. Just don't bother. Yeah. Like it yeah. might be the most epic thing ever. And you know, and you're like, oh, we're like two miles from camp. I don't want to come back here. Come back there. Shoot the photo yeah. again. Just like you, you're, you're going to thank yourself that you did. And mm-hmm. if you went and looked through my Instagram, you'd notice that probably 90% of the images I've ever shared are all shot in sunrise or sunset light. Mm-hmm. It's just like the easiest hack ever. doesn't matter what camera you have that's just going to be better. Well, it's hard to shoot. And this is something, again, like coming back to like starting out shooting press stuff, I never realized how hard it, because I didn't know that there was good light or bad light when I started. I was put, like my first ever photography assignment as like an apprentice, I was just put in a forest with a camera and told to stand on this corner and shoot it. And I didn't really know about good light and bad light. And it's only when I started doing other things and seeing photos and going, why does this look terrible? And it's because I was trying to shoot at midday. It's so hard when the, the light yeah. is harsh and the shadows are harsh yeah. and, and you yeah. can't, you, you can't like cameras are not as good as our eyes. And it took me a really long time to realize that is so important to making a good photo. Like our eyes are phenomenal and cameras are, a, they're getting better, but they're a bit crap and, and you can't make that gap up. It, it just, yeah. it just is well, and, and that's why, f- and film is really good at that. Film has a high dynamic range, so it can actually mm. make, midday stuff look so much better especially if you pick the right film like i shoot this really cheap film called uh color plus 200 kodak it's <laughs> not too. even a professional level film <laughs> yeah. and if you shoot that at 10 a.m or 11 a.m or noon it looks amazing without even trying because it yeah. just has the ability to soft roll off the highlights and mm-hmm. bring up the shadows in a way that looks natural to your eye 
and looks even probably even more pleasing in some situations, more pleasing than what your eye sees. Um, but digital cameras, now they're getting there, like you said, but they don't have the ability to see um, into the shadow and into the brightest spots of the image of a midday image the way that our eye does. Because our eye actually is doing adjustments faster than our brain can register. When we look in the darkest part of a, of a room or outside underneath a shadow of a tree, and then we look, you know, the snow-capped peak that's in full bright sun, our eye is actually adjusting. Um, so it's, it's adjusting exposure, basically the way a camera would adjust exposure and, and cameras can't do that in one image unless they're like mega high quality cameras. And even then there's somebody behind the scenes editing that to make it look more even and balanced. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you don't know or want to learn how to do that, shoot some film in the middle of the day or don't shoot in the middle of the day. Like Mm -hmm. that's just, that's like the, the easiest hack ever. Uh, you know, and sometimes like the, the iPhone the iPhone still cannot shoot a sunset to save its life. Like it, it gets weird banding. It can't tell what colors are. It just, you look at it and you're like, I swear it looked better in real life. And it, uh, you know, even big cameras have a hard time with that, but regular like cameras are going to do better than an iPhone in good light. This is going to do much better. Um, but the, even the iPhone will do better than it does in the middle of the day. So uh, that's that's something I would always try to, if there's a spot or a scene that you have in mind, um, go back at good light, man. That's going to make everything look so much better. So you talked about it there with the iPhone. I take it you don't or you're not like a really a proponent of like an iPhone with some moment lenses on it to make it like a bit more flexible. You're kind of just, it's just not worth going to that effort. I've never tried it. I've never gone. Obviously, my camera, my phone has a wide angle lens, which is quite cool. It's a nice effect. But uh, yeah, going that extra step and buying like lenses and filters and stuff for your phone isn't worth it. So I've heard that I've heard from a friend that the CEO of Moment is like, we're going to be out of making lenses in two to three years because the camera lenses on phones are so good. We don't need to put lenses on them anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm not even sure they're needed. Um, they they do help a little bit. Like, you know, when things are so small, like the lens on a camera, it's just like, there's no distance. Mm-hmm. It's just mathematically really hard to make it look good. So then they add software to compensate, but you're mm-hmm. actually digitally manipulating an image. And at that point, it just won't look as good as a real image when you start to digitally manipulate. Cause you're like pulling and pushing pixels. You're like stretching things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like if you had a masterpiece painting and then you decided to like stretch it and, and, and pull it to fit into a different size canvas, it's going to look a little weird. The colors are going to get a little stretched out. They're not going to look the same. So I am not a proponent of that. Um, I find it, I find it kind of a bandaid for an amazing device. Like the, the phone takes amazing photos, but to me, they're never the feel of what I want. They're never, the quality of what I want. So I'm always slightly frustrated. So I am not a proponent of iPhone photography. I think that, yeah, sure. The best camera is the one you have in your pocket, but if you take a shitty photo and you look at it, you're like, that's shitty. Then it's almost worse than not taking a photo at all. Mm-hmm. Cause you're like, was it actually as good as I remember? I'd just rather just remember it without that shitty photo. You know, yeah. now I think it's really great. Like I take a ton of photos with my phone. But it's just generally of my friends and of my kids and of like of, of like know. a moment rather than like a mem like a, it, yeah it's like a snapshot yeah. of a memory right like the same as yeah. a selfie in a nice place it's like oh I was exactly. there and that's reminding me but I'm not looking at this photo and having the same feeling I'm just remembering yeah. being there 
Yeah, and I'm not sharing those those uh, those images. Now, I will say that there's this new app. It might not be available where you guys are, but there's this new app. Uh, David Dobrik came out with it. Have you heard of this app? Yeah, I haven't heard of the app. I know who David Dobrik is. Go on, what's it called? So he came out with this app called, uh, what is it, Dispo. And it's supposed to be like a disposable uh, disposable camera app. Now, mm-hmm. what it does is it's like uh, it got this really lame viewfinder and you take a picture. I'm going to take a picture of this right now. And it has a flash on it, of course, which is really dumb. Uh, yeah. But it, it literally, it literally, I don't know if you can see that, but it, it literally looks like, yeah, I'll focus in. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah there you go. It, yeah. it looks like, it looks like a disposable camera. So uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, uh, it basically will give you your photos at nine a.m. the next day, and it puts a little whack ass filter on them. And they're perfect for Snapchats or snap snapshots because I just love it because it it looks kind of like a disposable camera, but it like and it makes you wait till nine a.m. the next day, and it's kind of a fun app. So that's that's kind of fun if you just want like a film vibe, but you want it on your phone and you don't want to mm-hmm. think about it, and you get all like the stuff that we were just talking about where you're like waiting for the images. That's kind of fun. But for every other like iPhone image, like I don't. It's not that I don't take those photos because I do want to look at them later, but I don't share those images as like evidence of how often things were very often I mean, like my Instagram stories or something like that, but mm-hmm. they're not what I consider photography. They're just, just memory snapshots, you know, like I'm not trying to make them good. I'm literally just pulling it out, snapping a photo and then putting it away. I'm not like, mm-hmm. what's the composition, you know, I, like it's just, it's always so uh, frustrating that I just don't even do it. You know, now, mm-hmm. Again, there are people who are really good at this, but I just, I think those people are, I think they're magicians. And I, I, I'm not well, sure that art the, form, right? like it's a, it's it a, is, but it's like, I'm not sure that the feedback that I'm getting is worth the effort. Right. Like I, I think, uh, yeah, I just don't, it's like trying to like write a hit song on like a $5, you know, you know, garage sale guitar. It's like, yeah, you can if you're like a master, but like for well, all the rest whole... of us, we should probably have a nice guitar. I'm sure you've you know? heard of it, but have you ever heard of like, there's a genre of music called chiptunes. I managed to <laughs> no. make myself phenomenally posh then. Uh, yeah, so chiptunes are basically, uh, they take a chip from like an 8-bit computer game console, so something like a Game Boy, and then they take, they make music using those chips. So like the sounds are all 8-bit, but they write like amazing music. Like it's really good, some of it, but they're doing it with like the worst possible device. Like there, there can't be anything worse than an 8-bit sound controller. And they just line them all yeah. up, they plug them into a computer, and then they put all the eight notes that they do into a different order and turn it into dance music. And it's like, it's really good. Um, it, it's that. <laughs> I mean, like, that is a challenge, right? Some it's a challenge and that. it's difficult, but nobody is yeah. like, like there's... Yeah. 12 people, me and my mate Joe included, that appreciate chiptunes, do you know? <laughs> it's yeah. worth listening yeah, to, but that's exactly the same as that, do you know? Yeah. You're taking the wrong then, device. You know, and Well, there's a couple of people, like there's this guy, Dan Tom, who takes really great iPhone photos. A mm-hmm. um, guy named Kevin Russ, who takes great iPhone photos. And and my friend Forrest, who we already talked about as a master, he will share some iPhone photos. Most of his photos are either film or uh you know digital they're not like a big digital camera he doesn't he doesn't always do phone photography because it's just you know it's not always worth sharing but that doesn't mean it's not worth taking so yeah i i think if i had to go back and like uh line item you know my tips for getting better photos would be first one shooting better light 
Second one would be try film if you're just wanting something that just comes back and looks good. And the third one would be like, think ahead about the settings that you want to shoot in, like what your route's gonna be and like kind of the mm -hmm. best areas. And then plan to be there at good light and with the right equipment to make that look like a good image, whether that be a long lens or a wide lens or just the kit you have. Mm -hmm. And then play around with your iPhone, but don't plan on that being art. Mm -hmm. Plan on that just being documentation. That's awesome, man. So I, I think one of the other things you said to me, and, and I've probably fell into this trap quite a lot. Uh, and it, you know, sometimes people say things to you and it's like a throwaway line, but it, it really resonates and it like sticks with you. And you're like, oh, that was like an amazing piece of advice, even if that person didn't realize it. Uh, and you said to me, when I take photos, the way I edit them, I want that photo to be timeless. Like I want to look at it in 20 years time, the same as we look at film from the 1980s now, and that to still look good. And, and you know, it, I think I always used to get trapped in, in that cycle a little bit of some of the stuff I would see would be a bit like you, you made a joke about it where it's like uh, a teenage dude with a, mo a movement watch on and he's got his feet hanging out of a helicopter and he's like living the dream. And he's like taking these like Clarity 100, Clarity 100 slider, you know, export, do it again, kind of super stylized. Yeah. You know, another really good example of that is some amazing photographers with like a hyper stylized style, but it doesn't translate well. It doesn't stand the test of time. And when I look back at some of my photos and I first discovered Lightroom and I was like, wow, this clarity slider is the boy. And I'm just like turning it right <laughs> up. I'm like, look how good this looks, you know. It was like, an, like a 2005 Red Bull shot or, do you know, maybe in a, a less extreme style like Aaron Brimhall. Do you know, you must have come yep. across his stuff. Like his stuff's yep. really stylized. But yeah. I think when we're talking about taking your own photos, that was one of the best pieces of advice you gave me was to make it, look like it's still going to look good in 10 years time whereas like I'm, i think aaron brimhall is a great example of this his photos are amazing he's got a really unique style but his saturated like dystopian desert look isn't going to look good in 15 years time i'm sure he yeah, does it yeah. as well do you know you know it might look out of style but it because he's like the pinnacle of it because he's created it. It might look good in his, the way that like 1980s font looks to us. Like it's like cool 1980s. <laughs> yeah, like I don't want it on my stuff, but it's 1980s. Yeah, yeah. It, it might look good for him. Uh, then maybe, maybe not. Maybe it will look awesome. And the dude mm -hmm. definitely can do regular stuff. I've seen him do regular stuff for commercial oh, shoots. Doubt. He's a that. fantastic photographer. Yeah. Yeah, but the difference is that he can do regular stuff. Like he learned the rules of editing and yeah. learned the rules of the game before changing them to his style. Whereas most people just go right for that style. And then they have mm -hmm. no idea how to do it regular. So I think that um, I probably told you that because I didn't do that in the beginning. Because I just edited in a way yeah. that I thought was I thought was pretty, uh, uh, you know, looked awesome and was vibey. But yeah, when I look back at my first year's edits, I'm like, oh God, so heavy handed. Like, how do I, how do I clean this up? Like, I just want to make it like this. These are great photos. Let's, let's just ease off a little bit. So now I'm definitely the other way. Maybe, maybe it's boring for people, but I edit in a way again, that I think brings the, the memory forward. It's not exactly like perfectly pixel peep clean, you know, like I'm not going to, I'm not like zooming in and checking the clarity and doing sharpness and all that um, on every image. But I am also wanting these images, if I pull them up, uh, you know, 
five years from now, 10 years from now, I want to look at it and be like, that was a pretty good edit. You know, like that was clean. Mm-hmm. That's all I want. I don't want to be like, wow, that was creative. <laughs> Mostly because that's my personality is like, I'm not like a very creative artist type. I don't know whether this color green or this color green is definitively better or my style. Um, a lot of people do know that. To me, I just know like mm, that green looks a little bit, you know, like it's a little bit blue for me and I'd rather it be a little bit more yellow, you know, like I can tweak it a little bit, but I'm not super interested in making a stylistic impression of that photo. Um, and some people are good at that. Like Brimhall, he's good at that. Mm-hmm. I'm not good at that. And I don't actually want to be good at that. I just want my photos to have a timeless feel. So that's what I'm trying. And what I've found is the best way to do that is to do something to where I like it, like pull a slider clarity, for instance, mm-hmm pull it to where I like it and then go much less <laughs> and then like make it much more normal. Right. Yeah, yeah. There's that's like the surefire way to look back at the image and be like, yeah, probably a little too much clarity, but it's good. Instead yeah. of like, Holy cow, that was a lot of clarity, <laughs> you know? Well, because I, like I went through this really is good in hindsight. Yeah. Well, and I, I went through this process. So I, I made, it was the first travel film I'd ever made. Uh, uh, I went to Nepal and it was like one of those experiences that in hindsight was incredible. And I'm really like honored and blessed that I got to go there and make this video. I knew nothing about making videos. I think I, I bought an ND filter and a drone to go there. I didn't know what I was doing. And, and I didn't really know how to take photos of that environment in kind of any way that did it justice i just shot photos as i went some of them are good action photos some of them are horrendous landscape photos but i i broke pretty much every rule that we've talked about in this podcast i shot in the middle of high sun in like desert mountains so everything is really contrasty and i tried to fix it by having quite stylized photos but they're only five years old and i don't think they age that well do you know there's no saturation there's <laughs> there's like a little bit of a sepia tone to everything it's almost like my yeah. first band photos but i'm a little bit <laughs> yeah. better than that do you know um, and and now i look back I, I actually went and re-edited them and i did it using forest's presets to see whether that would help in any way and it totally does you know like those photos the things i took photos of are really good and i actually look at them now i'm still quite proud of them but just the way i dealt with the situation by editing them was gross (laughs) and it just hasn't aged well at all do you know um yeah but i think when you're talking about creating photos you know if you're a, a person that likes riding motorbikes and going places essentially that the end goal is to make stuff that you look back on and 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 enjoy looking at and showing other people and and if you can if you're going for a more timeless style that's always going to look good right it's it's just yeah if it looks relatively natural and yeah i think that if you yeah exactly relatively natural is good and how do we get it to do natural is stop tweaking those sliders to where (laughs) it doesn't look where it looks unnatural and then using presets is also a good way but um there's also a limit in that you're using somebody's preset and if it makes it look kind of unnatural, there's no mm-hmm. way to turn it down except for to go down to every knob and turn down what the part that you're yeah, thinking, exactly. you know, yeah. looks unnatural. But there is a way. I, and I've recently started using this tool called Opal. And it's a plugin okay. for, uh, for Lightroom. And you buy it. Mm-hmm. It's like 15 bucks. And then you can, you can actually just, it's like a slider for the entire preset. So you okay, go, wow, yeah, that yeah. made it look cool. I like the way it looked, but it's just too much. And mm-hmm. you can just like slide it down. And it's basically like, goes from being your normal uh, and you know, 100 is, uh, you know, fully like the preset and you just slide it down a little bit, like mm-hmm. 50. And then you've got, you know, the taste of 
force mankins preset, but you don't actually have like this fully edited photo. Cause those presets, by the way, they're designed for maybe a set or two of images and he mm -hmm. tweaks them every single time he uses them. And what you're getting is you're throwing those on there and the chances that it's going to fit one out of a million light combinations is not mm -hmm. high, especially perfect, but it might look pretty good, but it's still always going to look maybe too much. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the name of the game with presets. Um, Cause yeah. if anybody yeah. made them look like nothing, then everybody would be so disappointed when they bought them <laughs> and be yeah. like, didn't do anything in my photo. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of the name of the game. Uh, so the Opal slider preset is, is like, or slider plugin, I should say is mm -hmm. amazing for, for making, a better timeless photo when you're using presets uh, speeds up your workflow too. Cause you don't have to go through and like lower everything. Yeah. So do you have presets that you sell as well? I don't sell presets. No. And, and part of you're that is because the I'm the photographer on Instagram that doesn't yeah. sell presets. Well, <laughs> so that, uh, two things. One, I feel like the preset market is pretty well saturated. Like there's a lot of good presets out there. I use mm -hmm. force presets from time to time. Um, and two is I'm just never, sure that what I'm making is fantastic in the preset region. Like I don't feel like editing is like the strongest asset I have for photography. Mm -hmm. That's not my strongest thing. So why would I pretend that it is and sell presets just for, to make a buck? Like I, I could, but I, why not come up with some other way, which is why I've, I came out with the, uh, the pitch deck kit is because mm -hmm. I felt like I was much, uh, much stronger at pitching projects than most of the photographers I knew. So I felt like I could actually help, other photographers yeah, yeah. better by helping them get money from companies to do projects they wanted to do than by coming out with another stylized preset pack that maybe wouldn't help them at all that they might mm -hmm. not even use. And they might just be like, well, I just spent 30 bucks on that and it's in the garbage. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think my so last question, to go a different direction. <laughs> so I think my last question is probably about composition because I think this is one of the, the most difficult bits of photography and, and it's something that I, I think you are actually, and, and a lot of the other photographers that you're surrounded by are all really good at about composing photos and how you go through that process. Is there, is there something that you do specifically when you look at a scene? Do you follow any rules? Do you follow, do you deliberately break any rules? Have you got any kind of guidelines for how you approach taking the photos you take? So, well, I think as, as you start out, um, the only way to get good at composition is to take a bazillion different compositions. Mm -hmm. So what that means is if you are, you know, you're on, uh, you know, a two track and you've parked your motorcycle this way and you're shooting it from this way, then you should also shoot it from this way. And you should also shoot it from this way. And you mm -hmm. should also shoot it from up here and you should shoot a ton of different compositions and then later pick the one that you think looks the best. Right. Then you'll start to learn like, Oh, I actually really like it that composition when it's this way and you know there's a little bit of fog in the back and there's the leading line of the road that kind of draws my eye in there and start to think about composition but to do that you've got to like take a bunch of different compositions you can't just be like i took one and i'm good i think that's the best one um so that's like that's how i started out was now obviously i i have a better feel for it but i used to just take a bazillion compositions um and i think as I, as I've gotten, you know, more experience doing that, a couple of things I do, um, is I literally do this stupid thing where you're like looking and you're like, yeah, you're just kind of, you're trying to like do that. Or like, uh, another way to like, cause it's like a 3d world and you're trying to see what it looks like 2d. So another thing I'll do is I just open up my camera on my phone. I don't even take the, the photo. I just look at it and just go like, okay, yeah, like this is lined up that way. And this will like help me minimize 
the 3D down into a 2D world? Because that's really what a good composition is, is how are you taking this 3D world and aligning the 3D uh, elements so that it looks good flat? So it looks like it has some depth still. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that's what a good composition really is. It's just an image that has good depth so that you feel like you're not looking at something flat, but you're looking at something real, like Mm -hmm. something that you could almost reach into the photo. So I use those two techniques to like look at stuff. Um, But you know, there's no real hard and fast rules for composition. Everybody does it different. Like um, my style of compositions is, is much more um, alive than, than most people who are my contemporaries. A lot of people, I don't even know how to do this, but like um, one of my friends, she is really good at making compositions that just look quiet and silent and like they're minimalist. And if we shoot the same photo, it is worlds apart worlds apart like mine is like including so many elements and it's like this whole vibrant scene and hers is like a vignette it's like tighter in and closer or like an angle that has just nothing behind it Mm -hmm. um and that's just how she sees the world so composition is very subjective but to find out what you think is good and how things line up um you know you want to uh just try a bunch of different compositions and then i think that lining things up if you're shooting landscape specifically with the rule of thirds is really, uh, you know, rather than putting your subject straight in the middle, maybe if there's like, let's say again, there's like a, a road with lean line and then there's this, this dramatic landscape that drops away into this valley, you put your motorcycle on like, you know, if you have a big rectangle, you put your motorcycle like on the third and then the two thirds of the image is gonna be that valley. Instead of putting your motorcycle in the center and then cutting off that vista of the valley, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so just playing around with that and, and allowing other elements in, to create depth in your photos, that really is helpful. Uh-oh. Oh, man, I think you're, uh, your camera's dropped out. What a nightmare. My camera just died. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Uh. I, I bet you're right. I bet, uh, give me one second. I'm going to switch the battery. I think you're right about the battery uh, going dead. doesn't charge, turns out. But mine seems to be. Oh no, yeah, no, I'm still, I'm down to half battery. We, uh, we had this discussion just before we started because normally I plug my, we use our cameras as webcams and I normally plug mine into an AC charger. And he was like, no, no, it's cool, man. They charge off the USB. And I was like, wow. But, yeah, yeah no. they don't what? charge off the USB. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's funny. good. Well, there you go. <laughs> mine was full battery when we started. Thank God. So, but, uh, uh one of the other things that I think uh, is really uh, a lot of people do is they try to create, uh, and this is probably a whole nother subject, but I feel like they almost go hand in hand is, is the transition between creating like a nice home movie of your trip and creating uh, a good photo. They're essentially nearly the same skill set. When, when you're shooting stuff just with your family, like a, a new, are capturing those home movies do you go through the same process of what you're trying to do so well there's kind of a rule that i use is that the more you document your adventure or your your whatever you're doing the less you're actually doing that thing so Mm -hmm. if you're documenting a motorcycle ride the less you're actually like engaged in that motorcycle ride you'll be riding along thinking like what's my next shot or how am i going to show this or what's a creative way to show how fast we're riding you know Mm -hmm. you're not actually just being like, oh, this is sick. I'm riding fast, right? So I don't, I actually really don't like taking photos and doing video at the same time 
because of the cognitive load. Even if I was only there to document, it's still difficult to do both well. So I, when I am doing video, so like, let's say that I'm just doing video. Um, yeah, I'm trying to compose stuff uh, well. I think for, if you're shooting video, it's really important to learn how to hold your camera still. And I don't mean use a gimbal or like GoPro stabilization. I'm talking just learn how to hold the thing still. <laughs> like put your elbows into your chest and hold the thing still, you know, like put it on your forehead yeah. if you need to, you know, like really lock it in with multiple points and just hold it still. That really, that can up the level of your video quite well. And then, um, you know, I always try and keep clips pretty short so that later mm -hmm. I don't have to mess with them. Um, and, and get a bunch of different angles with video. That's the other thing with video too, is like, I would never shoot a photo of my wheels, like going past gravel, just of the wheels. But that video clip would really be a nice um, filler, not filler, but like B-roll to really describe what kind of road you were driving on and, and you know, give you another piece. So you get to, it's fun because you get to shoot a lot of things that for a photo you would never shoot because they wouldn't look good. They wouldn't mm -hmm. describe anything. But because there's motion, it describes a lot more. So, yeah, I think it's basically, uh, it's it's a very similar, uh, yeah, it's very similar. But I think there's a lot of latitude in video in that it doesn't have to be a super amazing composition to be a, a good part of your video. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that's a, I think with video, one of the things that people miss is they end up just shooting what's right in front of them and they don't vary their their shots. They don't get medium wide and close-ups. Like mm -hmm. with photos, you can just get mediums. You could shoot 35 your whole trip. It's going to be interesting. If you just shoot one angle, like a GoPro head angle, or just, you know, the same angle from, for video, it's, it's not going to be an interesting video. There's going to be the, somebody's brain is just physically going to be tired of watching the video because it's just one angle. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Well, it's been fast. I love it. I'll try that again. This has been fascinating. It really has. Um, on like a personal level, I'm glad you just said as well uh, that you know this is something I, I kind of battle with a lot because I, I shoot all of our YouTube videos. I shoot everything. I shoot the photos. I shoot the video, and and sometimes I just get to a point where I'm like I cannot process anything else anymore. And to hear you say that that is sometimes a little bit frustrating is quite nice because sometimes I'm like, how do people do this, man? How do they think of the story, take the photos? think about all the logistics of what's going on and still enjoy the moment. I get to the point sometimes yeah. where I'm like, I need a beer. <laughs> do, you, do you know? Yeah. Well, this is why like professional film crews have so many people on them is nice. because like a director is only there to direct the story. Like yeah. an actor is only there to act out what the lines are on the page. The, the, like the DP, the guy who's in charge of the director of photography doesn't even touch the camera in most cases. That's the camera operator's job. Like yeah. they, they separate it out, not because they, they're just trying to get everybody to get paid, but they separate <laughs> it out because that's when everybody's just focused on the, you know, on the macro or the micro level of, of the craft, then they can free up their mind to think bigger picture for somebody else. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, when you're making a film and you're the director, the DP and uh, you know, and the camera operator, you're filling three really mega roles and yeah, of course you're not going to do well at all of them. You know, I, I was just on a production where I got to be a director and hire a DP and that DP had uh, an AC, which is somebody who pulls focus and like gets the camera ready. And then I had an assistant as well. And it was like, we made some good shit. 
Like it was really <laughs> much better for me to be able to like focus on the concepts we wanted to tell and what we wanted to make. And um, yeah, like it was, it's the highest quality stuff I've ever made. Um, so folding that in, like as, as, as a, uh, as just like, you know, if you're just a regular person trying to make a film and shoot photos of your motorcycle trip while trying to have fun, cause that's obviously probably why you're doing it. Um, you're, you should know you're taking on a massive cognitive load and that something is not going to, something's not going to be, uh, very good. Either your ride, your photos or your video are going to suck. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. unless or you're you miss, just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. or yeah, maybe yeah. you've got this capacity to process information that I haven't. Yeah. But you, you, I, I find when I, I've been in that situation, I start to miss things. You know, you get a bit yeah. tired, so you don't enjoy things as much because you're like dealing with too much kit. And, and these are like minor gripes, but you, you start to take yourself out of the moment a little bit more and more and more the more time you spend yeah. doing that stuff. And you, you kind of, like you say, especially when you're traveling on a motorbike and then you kind of form like when we went to mongolia when when you add too much work into there and a little bit of that was them as well but when you you, you do just get worn out with it do you know you, you yeah. you're tired like i'm not good at being tired anyone that knows me will tell you that <laughs> you give me six hours sleep instead of eight and i'm not my best version of myself <laughs> but you, you you know you add that up over over a period of days and, and it does just start to drain away at you a little bit do you know yeah so you yeah. don't enjoy what yeah, you're there to difficult. do as much as you probably could. So if Very, you're going on holiday, don't film it. <laughs> just take some nice Well, photos. you know, it's, it's interesting to think like, um, you know, a lot of the photography YouTubers, they mm. don't ever get any photo jobs. Like Peter McKinnon is not getting hired to do photography jobs. Just because he loves, like, I, love Pete, I love Peter McKinnon, but he loves the clarity slider. Like him, him and Clarity, him and Clarity are really good friends. He's I think a good he could take a good photo, right? Yeah, yeah he can. But, but, but like, he's, he's not getting hired to shoot. I mean, he might be. He, he would be an enigma if he was. But like, most of the photography YouTubers are not. Like my friend Jesse Driftwood is not getting hired to do commercial shoots for Nike. It's just not happening. Like, it, you know, it's um, they're two different things telling story with video. And that's also why my YouTube channel has like 2000 subscribers is because <laughs> I'm a professional photographer and I just know, yeah. like, I can't just stop and like, okay, I'm going to spend the next year and a half of doing YouTube and not mm-hmm. take a single photo. But that's really what it would probably take for me to be an incredible YouTuber, right? Like that it would be that focus. Yeah. It's two different things. Mm-hmm. Well, anyone that was yeah. there at the start of Pete McKinnon, like he went deep, you know, a lot of yeah. those those people that make it that big, they, they're dedicated to it. You know, I'm, I don't know if you ever came across him, but there's a chat, a guy called Matt Devella and he's a good filmmaker, but there's always yeah. one or the other that gives like, he's either making films or he's making loads of YouTube videos and having a breakdown in public because it's too, it's too much. I don't know if you ever followed that. This is a whole different rabbit uh-huh. hole, but he had a pretty public uh-huh. breakdown <laughs> and, like, no, and it's I kind of been ongoing know. since he does he, his content. I don't know if you have, have you ever seen it before? Yeah, I saw some of it. It's like it's like yeah. uh, like, self help, like basically. Self-help. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. he's a filmmaker, and he's really good at what he does. Like his YouTube channel is beautiful. He's made a couple of documentaries on for like that have been on Netflix. Uh, but he he got to the point. His thing is self help, and then he made an episode, and it was just titled "I Have Anxiety." Basically, he moved house, and the process of moving house made him so anxious. He had a breakdown, and he thought his house was trying to kill him. Like he was like, there's something wrong. I'm feeling really sick. But it was basically, he was just like, he had anxiety really bad. 
Uh, and it was super public. And it was basically because he was like one person doing a full-time podcast and making a YouTube video every yeah. week and yeah. trying to make a Netflix film. And I was like, how did you not see this coming, dude? You're the one doing this. <laughs> you know, it's not possible, <laughs> is it? It's too much. No. But yeah. No. Yeah. It's supposed it's to funny, be fun. Yeah. The moment it's that it stops being fun, there's millions of like, I'm just going to go like uh, be a garbage collector and like have a beer after work, right? Like there's a bazillion things you can do, but yeah, it, it should be fun. Yeah, man. Yeah. I think I would probably like be a motorcycle mechanic. I'd just sit there and like be greasy all day and then have a beer at the end if it wasn't for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> you have to be good at, you have to be good at working on motorcycles though. I'm not uh, I'm terrible. So I'm, like, I'm like, I'm really good at yeah, pulling them apart. Right, I'm really bad at putting them back together. <laughs> oh man. I have literally four in my garage right now that are in parts and I'm like slowly working on one. And I'm like, God dang it. I do this to myself every time. <laughs> but yeah. that's because in the, in the U S as well, I, I don't know if I ever told you this before, but it's impossible to buy a vintage bike here unless you have a real job because they're so expensive. Like I've seen your garage, you have like an old RM250 and some other bikes and you yeah. bought them for like not yeah. a lot of money. And when you made that, yeah. you made that video about, and this has got nothing to do with photography at this point. I'm very sorry to the people <laughs> listening, but he, you made a video where you bought an RM250 and you kind of used it to replace a snowmobile. And it was a pretty fun video. Yeah. And I was like, what a great idea. I'm going to go and buy a shit bike. <laughs> I'm going to buy an old shit bike. And I went on eBay and I was like, motocross bike. And then... I put it to like cheapest first and there was nothing less than like $5,000. I, <laughs> ah, I, I promise you, you cannot buy. There's like no wanting... like grandmas and grandpas that have motocross bikes and like Swansea are, or anything. Yeah. Yeah, they do. And they're selling them for $5,000 to vintage motocrossers. <laughs> it's uh, insane. Yoy. That's so, not uh, great. My, I, I think he's, he's messaged, I commented on a few of your things, but a friend of mine, uh, Owen, he, uh, he had this really good idea. He's like, I've got a Patreon page and what you should do is you should take all of your Patreon budget for a month and see how much of an adventure you could have with it. And I was like, this is a great idea. This is a great video. It's going to be really fun to make. I'll go and buy a bike for like 300 pounds, any bike, like any motorcycle. I'll buy a scooter. I'll buy one of those Hondas with the, like the pedals that don't really work just, and I'll go and ride into the hills and see how stuck I get and hope someone comes rescue me. And it'll be really good. Uh, and you can't do it. I can't, you can't buy a motorcycle for the amount I earn off Patreon in a month. It's not possible. The only thing you can do, and this is a little heads up for those that are watching this on Patreon or anyone else that sees this, but basically, I don't know if you've ever seen it, you can buy a fifth, it's like 80 pounds here, but it's a 50cc two-stroke petrol engine that's big enough oh, to put bolt it on the... into a bicycle. So I'm going <laughs> to yeah. bolt one of those to my bicycle. Cause like you could just do it with an e-bike, but I don't want to buy an e-bike. Uh, and yeah. I'm going to see how far you can ride one because that's the only thing that I can afford in my budget to make a motorcycle in the UK is <laughs> it's so phenomenal. You cannot buy a motorcycle for less than 3000 pounds. Motorcycles in the last year, I think just cause of COVID all this shit has like doubled in price. So mm -hmm. luckily I have a barn full of them uh, and I can, I can like fix them and sell them. So I'm on the right side of the market, but it's like, it's kind of disappointing. Cause like, you know, you will cruise uh, Craigslist or, or just like the local classifieds and it'll just be like the same thing, like a $3,000 motorcycle. And it's like ran when parked in 1982, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. so it doesn't run. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the last one I bought, the last one I bought was supposed to be like a full on runner and I bought it from Canada. I got really risky and I got down here and it had no spark like at all. And then <laughs> oh, I pulled the, God. I pulled the crankcase off and then I went to turn, uh, 
turn the uh, like the, the nut on the crank, you know, pull off the mm-hmm. static, the flywheel, and yeah. it just the, yeah the the end of the crank just like tore off with like no effort, and somebody had like broken it off somehow, like snapped the end of the crank off. And then like half-ass welded it back on, stuck everything back on there, and then sold it as if it was running. <laughs> and I and, and I got it. I was like, sweet, I'm awesome. But it's a really uh, cool old Husqvarna, and I got a, a decent deal on it, even for not running. But mm-hmm. yeah, I was like, I was so bummed. I was just like, oh, I thought I had a running bike here, and not only do I not have a running bike here, but I have like a total disaster of a bike here. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. man. Well. At least you can buy them. <laughs> That's the moral of this yeah, story. I don't know if it's the same in the States, but like the vintage dirt bike scene here is really strong. So there's a lot of, I think this is why the prices are so high between the hipsters in like, between hipsters in London and like the vintage motocross scene. Both of those scenes are really strong in the UK. There's tons of them. People buy old bikes and turn them into cafe racers or scramblers, or they buy old yeah. motocross bikes and they actually go race them. And between those two, they've just inflated everything so that poor people like me can't the, buy them just to hack around on. The vintage motocross scene is not huge here, uh, mm. especially in Montana. But the all the all like the vintage street legal stuff is is very yeah. expensive. But like two stroke dirt bikes were like, you know, anybody could get them for a couple hundred bucks because they were just seen as like old, unreliable. Like everybody wants the XRs, like the Honda mm-hmm. four strokes those because they can be dual sported here and like everybody wants those but like the non-street legal stuff mm-hmm. nobody wanted to touch that it's all you know it's just you can buy it anywhere but it is going up in price have you have you seen there's a brilliant series as well uh, and it's just good for the entertainment value um there's a, a shop called rocky mountain atv mc i don't know if yeah, you've ever, yeah yeah the worst yeah. name for a yeah. shop of all yeah, time. my brother my, i love that shop it's like cheap <laughs> shit and they make their own brand and stuff like yeah i love it but yeah you're talking about the series where they took the old bikes on the yeah on that. it was extreme enduro it was a, it was a great concept for a series uh yeah. i i think that you and i should do something like that because i think that uh uh we'd be a, a a lot better riders and be a lot better in front of camera like these are like yeah. full-on like well they're proper like, like grease monkeys that work in the warehouse <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah but it's good it's yeah, good like, it's good youtube it is yeah it's classic youtube but like then in the end like half of them bail out they don't even make it and i'm like like yeah. the one guy who's clearly like the owner is why he got invited he just like just was tired and couldn't make it so he's going back <laughs> come on yeah. like what no like the shit they ride i ride my vintage bike on stuff that hard all the time like that's yeah. that's yeah all the time like that's i'm like oh cool that trail looks really fun and they're like struggling like can we make it and i'm like maybe it's just youtube but like yeah i could make it up that just put a trials tire on your vintage motorbike and you'll be fine yeah. hang on <laughs> yeah. maybe if we did but, that here they'd spontaneously combust in a ball of rust but <laughs> yeah maybe that's the well, other no, problem here, yeah. well no i think here. this uh we've digressed a long way from talking about photography there yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah we have um a hundred percent this has been an awesome podcast um uh, i always like to end the podcast just by letting you the expert guest in this situation tell the listeners where they can find you uh and what yeah, they man. can see your content where they can see it what you, they can buy from you you can see me uh, i think on everything it's isaac s johnston is uh is my handle i think instagram youtube and i don't really do anything else just because 
there's only so much time in a day that you can stare at your phone, but uh, yeah, you can find me there, see my photos and kind of see what I'm up to. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, dude, I appreciate it. It's good to talk to you and always love doing a podcast with you. Good chats. Yeah, it's been awesome, man. Fantastic. Well, have a, have a good rest of your day. Um, yeah. yeah. Catch you soon. All right. Talk to you soon.